Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting fans and faithful. This is your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. Frankly, I'm exhausted. Um, not even like physically tired. Just this is all things almost DC week. Uh, we are closing. We are clo- we are coming to an end, and and I am spent. Have you heard? Mark Radlich, by the way. <laughs> and if you heard our review last night of Batman v Superman, you know that. This whole subject matter has broken me. I, I need a break. I actually need to go to WrestleMania and invest myself in something else that people that nerds are arguing over uh, to get away from all of this. But uh, that, that being said, we are tonight closing out all things almost DC, uh, or almost all things DC. We did our, uh, we, did, we looked at Man of Steel, positive and negative podcasts. We reviewed Batman v Superman, uh, and tonight, uh, here on the long road to ruin, we put the final nail in the coffin and move on to other things, more fun things, as it were, uh, by looking at the animated Dark Knight Returns uh, movies. There were two of them, and then they released the deluxe version that just runs straight through. Uh, so that's what we'll be talking about tonight, but we're also going to extend the conversation in general to... Uh, our thoughts about the DC Cinematic Universe. I've already talked at length between the Indefense of Man of Steel and last night's Batman vs. Superman review about my thoughts about the DC Cinematic Universe. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on my co-host, Mr. Sean Comer, and I'm going to let him expound on his ideas on both, because he's got a lot to say. We've talked we've talked at length about it uh, offline, and I want to. And as much as I want to talk about the movie tonight, I also want to give Sean his. I want to give him an opportunity to talk about his issues with both the DC Cinematic Universe and the live action universe, and how it all relates to what we're going to be talking about tonight, which is the animated Dark Knight Returns. So here he is, everyone, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? I'm getting very, very good now at keeping at not going over. Like I think we went over a little bit the other night, but I've decided that there is no more overage. <laughs> I just set the show for whatever it is, and I play within the boundaries. Uh, Sean, you, um, you and I were talking before the show started tonight, and I liked a lot of what you had to say. Um, 
We, you, you already know my opinion. I don't need to go belabor those points. But I do think people should hear your side of things. So I was telling Sean that, that before we started tonight, I, was, I, I had an opportunity to sit down and watch uh, The Flashpoint Paradox from the DC Cinematic uh, Animated Universe, which is currently on Netflix. And I've seen pretty much all the, the DC animated movies up to this point, but I had fallen asleep on that one the first time I rented it, and I never went back and watched it again. So I gave it another shot today, and I liked it. Uh, I thought it was a fun story overall. Um, but I I was a little shocked by some of the graphic violence in it. And I mentioned it to Sean, and Sean dug, in, dug deep and, and put his heart out there and said, there are issues here. There are issues with DC that need discussing. Uh, so, Sean, go ahead and um, take it from the top. What What is your frustration with DC overall? And you, you take this in the direction it needs to go. Well, the problem is it plays into, and I think it plays up, capitalizes on, and throws gasoline on the fire of this ridiculous debate among nerds. And it's the idea, and you see the same thing in other media as well, gaming especially, um, but also in everything from manga to comics to literature to it's the idea that there is this hard line in the sand that this stuff is for the children, that this stuff is for the big folks. And if you end up on the wrong side of that, especially if you're somebody who's supposed to be on the big people's side and you find yourself liking something that's over here on the little people's side, uh, you're characterized as some kind of drooling idiot man-child with arrested development that hasn't expanded past the age of about 12. Where this comes from, I have no idea. But it's led to this idea that anything that is graphic, serious, grim, and depressing, even to a seemingly accepted degree, is just blanket justified as, oh, well, that's for the grown-up. That, that's, for the, that's for the adults to, to enjoy. If you want to enjoy that other, oh, that kid stuff, oh, bro, then by all means, go, by all means, go watch Marvel because they make movies for children. Um, that, that's what I see most places. The problem being is that DC, for years now, but particularly excessively over, I would say, the course of about the last 10, has really tried to appeal to people who masochistically desire to just be beaten over the head with just how shitty life can be at every single turn. Um, for our colleagues out there listening who have talked about comics and whatnot with me on other occasions, uh, you've probably heard me say DC wants everybody to be Batman. Uh, that doesn't mean they want everybody to be an iconic flagship character that enjoys over, over 75 years of consistently rabid readership and being a linchpin in the pop culture zeitgeist of practically every decade. It means that they want everything to be, though the popular term is grimdark. Uh, you see this 
quite often uh, to exercise a show, to point out a show that is guilty of this and yet oddly enough has also become one of my favorite things on TV on Arrow. Uh, Greg Berlanti and the CW at one point wanted to do a Batman series. Warner Brothers said, no, you cannot have Batman. He has the Batman. He cannot have. Uh, so instead, what they did was they decided to do a from-the-ground-up, origins-onward uh, story of Oliver Queen, Green Arrow. Except for the fact that instead of making him a smartass who, in terms of hand-to-hand combat, got his ass handed to him regularly and espoused uh, a tidal wave of overt far-left socioeconomic ideals and was always out to, to, you know, to to get those rich fat cats, uh, to borrow from a very archaic phrase that he was even still, still using as recently as 15 or 16 years ago. Um, instead, now he's basically become this perpetually scowling, brooding, hyper-violent, shadowy Avenger of uh, Southern City. And you start to see just one element after another, after another, after another of your of your standard Batman story, of the Batman universe, right down to even some, even some villains, all of a sudden being transplanted into Southern City. And it really is kind it really is kind of jarring. Now despite that it's managed to carve out its own identity. And it's managed to have a lot of elements that are immensely enjoyable and that are in fact truly those of Green Arrow. That being said, there's still a metric fuck ton about the show that is still blatantly shoehorning Batman and Bruce Wayne into Oliver Queen and Green Arrow. Um, it's painfully obvious, but everything else has got to be good enough to overshadow it. What that's really emblematic of is the problem that's come up with a lot of the DC live-action movies. And that is, is that they witness the massive, nigh-unprecedented success of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, which itself borrowed from some very, some very grim chapters in Batman. Um, and had a very serious, down-to-earth, weighty, somber tone about them the whole way through. Um, it goes back to, in a way, a very old DC editorial edict, and by the way, this is actually a thing, that at no point is anybody in the Bat family supposed to have a happy love life. Yes, that is really a thing. That is an editorial mandate. So Warner Brothers and DC witnessed this gargantuan success, watched it become the very first superhero movie to win a major acting Oscar. Of course, I'm referring to Heath Ledger's turn as the Joker in The Dark, in the dark Knight, which got him, uh, Mark reminded me, Best Supporting Actor or Best Actor? I forget. I know it was one of the two. Um, I want to say I think it was Best Actor, but I could be wrong on that. 
Um, anybody who wants to, yeah, um, feel free to correct me. Um, not a molecule of a fuck given. But they witnessed this, and at the same time, they witnessed the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which was conducted in a way wherein, wherein the superhero movie has not become so much a genre unto itself as it has a backdrop to other types of genre stories. We've watched the first two, I, the first two, well, actually, pretty much the entire Iron Man trilogy become uh, tense action technological thrillers. Uh, in the first Captain America movie, you have the elements of an Indiana Jones-style historical period epic that's just fraught with action from beginning to end, and hey, look, even boatloads of Nazis getting their ass in hand. Uh, in Thor, you had, a great, you had a great deal of really captivating, breathtaking high fantasy. Uh, the second Captain America movie comes comes along, and hey, look, it's a political espionage thriller. They gave, they let each of the characters make their movies their own. Go that much further, and you have Ant-Man starring in one of the most successful superhero comedies to date, both critically in terms of audio reception and in, and in the sense of the box office. That all leads up to a groundbreaking historical success, success in a never-been-done-before superhero team-up that took the heroes who had already been established in each of their own phenomenally successful solo movies and brought them together for a colossal team-up for a story that had been gradually built by each of them. DC, for whatever reason, decided not to go that route for reasons that I can only describe as those being similar to a high school junior who is horrified that her slightly more pretty rival has worn the same dress as hers at the prom. It's basically the same, the same thing. They decided instead, instead of going to the template that demonstrably works, that inarguably was successful, and engage audiences in a colossal crossover franchise, the likes of which had never been seen before, no, we're going to do the exact opposite. Um, we're going to try to introduce as many people as we can in one movie, and then we're going to uh, just give them their own solo movies as they go along after the big after the big team up, and just hope that everybody just kind of becomes engaged with them, and, with them in the little snippets that they get in Batman Barry Superman. Um, but prior to all that, they went and made Man of Steel, which was a different kind of Superman than anybody had really seen before, and one that a lot of people were uncomfortable with seeing. It was a bit. It was a very jaded, serious, somber. In fact, he, he wasn't even really Clark Kent um, for the better part of the second of the second half of the movie. Um, you're exclusively spending time with the Man of Steel, not the mild not the mild mannered reporter who's trying to quietly make a home amongst the humans. Um, it of course ended in violent, catastrophic fashion 
and the shocker of Superman, the Man of Steel, the arbiter of truth, justice, and the American way, the big blue Boy Scout making the uneasy decision to snap General Zom's neck. Um, And since then, DC hasn't really relented with this idea that, well, we're going to make stories for the middle-aged men, for the adult comic comic readers, and they've taken that to mean everything has to be serious, dark, death, tragic, tragedy, sadness, ice cream spilled on the ground, balloons balloons popped, um, you know, Rocky Balboa getting his ass getting his ass handed handed to him, um, old yeller getting shot in the head, just kind of all of the tragic all of the tragic things. Like you mentioned Flashpoint. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and spoil it. Um, to get well at least some of it to give you a general idea. The whole idea is Barry Allen decides to take some things a step too far, go back in time, and save his mother from being murdered. Uh, well, in, in a way, he's, he's almost kind of, given, kind of given no choice but to do it, thanks to uh, uh, Zoom, uh, the reverse flash, um, Eobard Thawne, uh, who pretty much puts him puts him into, uh, at least he thinks, kind of a Kobayashi Maru type no-win situation. By going back and doing that, he in turn sets off a ripple effect that is never fully or adequately explained. By which somehow, just to give you the short version, by doing that, Bruce Wayne is murdered in the alley instead of his parents and the hen- and hence, uh, distraught and broken, and a very alcoholic Thomas Wayne ends up becoming a gun-toting, villain-shooting Batman. Um, Superman does not land in middle of nowhere, Kansas, but instead lands, I believe it's right in the middle of, middle of Metropolis. He's immediately taken into military custody. Um, he's kept locked down and beat and the power for for the duration of his adult of his adult life, um, but the entire the, the main focus of the series is that war has broken out between the Amazons and the Atlantis, or rather, on the verge of breaking out because uh, Aquaman stuck his stuck his fish stick in Wonder Woman's tartar sauce. Um, right in front of basically a horrified Mira. Mira confronted Wonder Woman about it. Wonder Woman proceeded to decapitate her and that erupts into a war in which uh, Hal Jordan suicide bombs an Atlantean WMD. Um, an Atlantean contingent takes out Deathstroke and Lex Luthor on board an aircraft carrier because yes, in this world they're basically functioning as the good guys. Uh, the Flash never got his powers at all, and in fact only gets them gets them in this alternate world after having to twice try to replicate the lightning accident that gave them to him the first time burning him basically beyond recognition. Oh, and uh, there's also a lovely, lovely scene in which Wonder Woman forces Shazam to revert to 
to revert to his human form, and then proceeds to lift Billy Batson up like up like like up by the hair and gut him like a trout. And of course, this being a, being an Elseworlds story, they find a way to reverse everything, get back get back to the present. Uh, the Flash asks a passing Billy Bat- Batson, "Boy, what day is it today?" And Billy Batson tells him that it's Christmas Day, and the Flash zooms off to Bob Cratchit with all of the turkeys and all of the signatures and all of <laughs> all of the things, and you know. Wonder what, and you know, a, a not a not yet cured Barbara Gordon hobbles in on hobbles in on a crutch and says, "God bless us, everyone, except the Joker. Fuck that guy." Obviously, the rest of that doesn't happen, but you get the idea, and that's all a pretty good summation of where DC has gone, and and what it all boils down to is. To compare them again to the TV shows, the TV shows, if you go down the line of every, almost almost every DC-branded TV show, I'm throwing Gotham aside because fuck Gotham, fuck it right, it's decrepit, wart-addled ass. But all the rest of the shows, uh, Arrow, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Supergirl, they all have their own identity. And what's even better they all have a sense of what makes superheroes fun. Um, Arrow, as I said, yes, it's dark, it's depressing, it is not to be watched when you're already in kind of a bad mood, unless you just really want to watch Ollie Skewer a few people. But uh, the other shows, they're so endearingly optimistic and really do give you someone to root for and someone to root against while still making it clear that these are flawed people but just not necessarily flaming assholes. The movie so far, and I acknowledge that there's still room for them to turn this around, have neither done that nor demonstrated a desire to. Um, their, whole life, their whole idea is more so that, well, you know, you know how I would put it, Mark? They basically want to make the entire DC universe Watchmen. For the record, I hate Watchmen. What do you say? For the record, as much as I have uh, done mental gymnastics to defend both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, boy, how I hated the Watchmen. Well, uh, well, uh, allow me to be clear here. I'm not just talking about the movie. I'm also talking about uh, the comics. Which I'm sorry, folks. Come at me, bro, with your pitchforks. Feel free. I totally get why people like Watchmen. I really do, and I don't begrudge anybody liking it. Um, I'm not gonna sit here and pass judgment on. Well, if you like this, it makes you laugh. No, that that homie don't play that. Um, but in my opinion, I found Watchmen to be depressing, pretentious, albeit kind of an interesting story that unfortunately a lot of many writers and artists have entirely missed the point of in trying to kind of emulate it since then. 
in terms of sort of trying to deconstruct superheroes. Um, and to kind of bring that, to kind of bring that all the bring that all the way around, that's sort of what we have DC seemingly going with here is the idea that that's the way to go by them. That's the way we want to depict our entire universe. Everybody from the top right the fuck down. And unfortunately, to bring it all back around to our subject tonight, The Dark Knight Returns is an example of a very daring, very polarizing story that unfortunately I don't think ever should have been extrapolated in terms of its theme and its tone nearly as far as it has been. Um, and and, and we'll, we'll come back around to explain why, but in my opinion, it's definitely one of the better Elseworld stories DC has ever put together, especially since canonically it's been acknowledged as having taken place on um, Earth 31 out of 52. But all other things considered, it's something that really only worked one way, was a product of its time, and should never really be adapted again into anything else except a a faithful shot-by-shot recreation such as this. And even then, it's one of those stories where I really understand how a lot of people either love it or they hate it. And I certainly hold nothing against the people who hate it. Hey, Cole. How you doing? Happy belated birthday, buddy. Okay. Um, so that's that's a good transition into talking about the movie itself. And I'm, I'm going to just refer to it as the movie as the version I just watched was the deluxe version that ran straight through. The original comic series was four parts. Um, I'm going to give a very, very short synopsis of this. I'm going to leave out some details. But basically, I'm going to, I'm going to go by you know, what each of the chapters were about and the major action that happens in them, and then we can go back and talk about details. But essentially, uh, this is 10 years after the death of Jason Todd. Batman has retired. The superheroes have agreed with the government that they will not exist. Uh, Green Lantern left the planet. Uh, Wonder Woman went back to Thermitia. Aquaman went, went back to the water. And the only superhero uh, still going is Superman, and he works for Ronald Reagan. That's where we are. Uh, in that time, the, uh, there's a gang of, uh, a gang of hoodlums called the Mutants who have overrun Gotham with crime. Crime is on the rise. Uh, additionally, we have a psychologist who claims to have cured, or a psychiatrist, rather, who claims to have cured Harvey Dent. Uh, Harvey Dent's face has been repaired, and he has allegedly been rehabilitated, except that he hasn't, and he goes on a rampage. Um, All of these things spark uh, Batman to come out of forced retirement and take up the cape and cowl once again. He uh, goes to battle with with Harvey Dent, who turns out is still crazy and believes that he's uh, still disfigured. 
takes him down, then goes after the mutants. Uh, two fight scenes later, he takes down the mutant leader, and uh, the mutants sort of break off into smaller gangs, some of which become a vigilante group known as the Sons of Batman. The next thing that happens, uh, with the return of Batman, we delve uh, a little bit closer into the Arkham, uh, I believe it's Arkham Asylum, um, but uh, it's not the creepy, you know, ghoulish gar- Arkham Asylum that we've come to know and love. Uh, we have a brightly lit <sighs> a psychiatric institute where the Joker uh, has <laughs> displaying symptoms of uh, schizophrenia catatonia, which is essentially the Joker's heart is broken. <laughs> he's, he's just dead. He's just lying there, eyes open, just having been fed pudding. Um, and when he realizes Batman has come back, he, he too comes back to life. He uh, tricks the psychiatrist into letting him out. I'm sorry, you wanted to jump in here? Sean? Um, okay, no, I thought, I, I, I thought you were trying to jump in. Sorry. Um, no, yeah. no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm all right. Okay. Good. You'll have to excuse me. I'm a, I'm a little deaf still from my cold, so I, I thought I heard you. Moving on. Um, so the Joker tricks uh, the psychiatrist into letting him out, in which case he goes on a murdering spree, like the Joker does. Batman and the Joker have an interesting uh, interaction, a la the killing joke, uh, where Batman feels responsible for every murder the Joker has ever committed. Uh, the Joker proceeds to nearly murder Batman. Batman turns around and breaks his neck. And the uh, the Joker says, you know, I've won. I got you to go crazy. I got you to go over the edge. I have no... My, my purpose here is done. I'm going back to my people. And proceeds to snap his own... Continue to snap his own neck and killing himself. This is all done in front of... This is all done in front of witnesses, uh, including but not limited to the police and the new commissioner, uh, who are all anti-Batman. So now Batman is a criminal at large. Uh, a subplot of this story is the is the, the, the it's done in the '80s, so we still have the Cold War going on. We have an issue between what was known as the Soviet Union and the United States that Superman is involved in. Uh, an atomic bomb and a nuclear winter later, we have uh, cr- we have crime and riots in the streets across America, except for Gotham, where Batman has gotten the people and the sons of Batman to take to the streets to keep order. This embarrasses President Ra- uh, Ronald Reagan. So on top of him being in publicly embarrassed and the fact that Batman broke the agreement to not to no longer be a superhero... Uh, Reagan sends Superman after Batman. Um, this is the very famous, you know, Batman builds an exoskeleton, uh, defeats Superman with a crypt with uh, Oliver Queen's kryptonite arrow. Oliver is missing an arm, by the way. Uh, puts the foot on the neck, lets him know that uh, that he's beaten him, and then proceeds to quote unquote have a heart attack. Um. The world assumes that Batman slash Bruce Wayne, of course, they, they now come to realize that Bruce Wayne is Batman, uh, that Bruce Wayne, Batman slash, is dead. But what's really happened is he's faked his own death. He's gone underground with the new Robin, who I have not mentioned up to this point, but there's a new Robin who's a 13-year-old girl. Uh, 
she, Batman, the sons of Batman, some of the former mutants, and Oliver Queen go underground, and they are going to create a anti-crime resistance army, and that is where our story ends. Um, other than Superman kind of giving a wink and a nod, saying, you know, let's let's agree to not cross paths again. And that's our movie. Um, almost a direct representation of the comic book four-part uh, graphic novel storyline. I am pretty sure with a few changes here or there, um, it, it's almost a direct shot-for-shot shot, uh, representation of the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the first thing I'll, I'll say is right off the top is you know, Sean used the phrase uh, Elseworld. And as an Elseworld story, I really enjoy it. I agree with Sean at, at this point, it's a well that I think has run dry. Um, I feel like when anyone thinks about Batman, they just think about this story as if the rest of this, ma- rest of this character's uh, history is summarily forgotten or irrelevant. But uh, that, that's a conversation to be, to be had uh, a little bit later. For now, in terms of the storyline, um, how well this was all put together. I don't have a whole lot to say other than it's good. The voice acting is good. The animation's good. The storyline um, in and of itself is good and fairly represents the, uh, the comic books. And uh, I, 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 <coughs> excuse me, I like it better as one long film than I did uh, in two parts, but that's just a personal preference. What are some of your thoughts, Sean? Well, and here's why I actually have a lot of good things to say about it. Because before I get into a little bit of uh, of a history lesson about the context of the story, is get a few things out of the way. As a very aged, grizzled, sometimes even kind of lost Batman, if you have to get somebody other than Kevin Conroy to step in, and sort of play that same character that Kevin, prior to this, played on Batman Beyond. Peter Weller did an utterly, absolutely magnificent job as Batman, and my hat's off to him for what I think is going to go down as quite possibly, I would would dare say, an unsung superb Batman. Um, it's somewhere between. Oh, and hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up the second half of this half of this spectrum. Um, it's somewhere between um, Roger Craig Smith in Batman: Arkham Origins and in Batman under the red under the red hood. Um, hang tight, hang tight. Uh, uh, looking it up, looking it up, looking it up. Uh, uh, Bruce Greenwood. Uh, and Bruce Greenwood taking over as Batman in Batman Under the Red Hood um, in terms of quality. It, just because he brings so much out of, out of every little line and every delivery meshes so well with the way every scene is animated, the way every scene is lit. Um, on the other hand, you've got Michael Emerson, uh, who you might remember as Benjamin Linus from Lost, delivering 
an amazing, uh, what I can only call a subdued Heath Ledger Joker. Uh, that, again, it, it, I hate to say it, it breaks my heart to say that it's going to get so lost in the shuffle because the, the Mount Rushmore of people to play the Joker is kind of made up of Mark Hamill, Heath Ledger, um, God, my head tonight, and now I'm trying, and now I'm trying to, uh, trying to remember who played him in, uh, Arkham Origins, fucking hell, um, extremely famous voice actor, famous voice actor, um, has voice acted in all of the things, um, uh, um, um, why did I not look this up before? Um, uh, Troy Baker. That's it. Troy Baker. I, I should remember because he's one of my favorite voice actors. Been, been in The Last of Us, Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite, a bunch of my favorite games. Um, uh, kind of right, kind of right up there. But if you had to have somebody who was kind of just off. Just off to the side, kind of a good ways above uh, John DiMaggio's Joker in Under the Red in Under the Red Hood, or fuck it, I'm not going to look this one up. Uh, River plays the Joker, the, the weird dreadlocked Joker in uh, the Batman. Then, yeah, that's about where I where I would rank Michael Anderson. In other words, dra- way underappreciated, and if you had as you check this out for no other reason, watch it just for him. He really is excellent. Um, presenting this as a full-length animated movie, if you watch that way, or as a two-part animated movie, if you watch that way, um, actually, I think, kind of almost improves on um, the presentation over the comic book, in my opinion. At least, I, at least I prefer it. Um, it's definitely much more focused. It's definitely easier to digest without what is a very stylized, almost what, almost smeared watercolor kind of motif that the Dark Knight graphic novel and or that comic actually has. Um, this is presented in the kind of brilliantly detailed work that everybody has come to expect at this point from the DCAU. Uh, if I had to compare it to anything, it, it's comparable in the most complimentary sense of the word to Batman Year One. Uh, the score is, is also excellent. It, it absolutely befits an outstanding Batman movie. Overall, it's extremely enjoyable to watch as long as you're okay with the story. And that's where things can get iffy for some people. I say that because the story is a product of its time. What has to be pointed out is that this came out, or or this began its run in February of 1986. So right at the start of Ronald Reagan's second term. 
At which point, much as he's depicted in this movie and in the book, he was an extremely proactive, take-no-shit foreign policy president in that he was willing to engage just about anyone militarily that he viewed as a threat to the United States. Um, That has led him to have – it gave him a very – a very checkered public perception then, and it's it's contributed to a very kind of polarized historical perception of him now. At the time, if anything, this was Frank Miller's indictment writ large of the 80s. Um, much, if I had to compare it to anything, I would compare it to RoboCop. In turn, except that it doesn't play up the the excess, the, the bomb, the bombast, uh, the the foreign policy, the gumption of of foreign policy, and the and the idea that the government was really taking aim at itself aim at its own people in order to maintain control of them to a certain extent in quite the the far-fetched kind of funny ha-ha tone that Paul Verhoeven brought to RoboCop. But in a way, it's the same end that are thought, that are sought. Um, right down to the president, the president is not a, we're not talking about a Ronald Reagan analog. Uh, we're talking about actually Ronald Reagan, six Batman, or six Superman on Batman. That is what happens. And that's why he depicts Superman as being this sort of blindly allegiant patriot. So, but you have to remember that this was all coming about at a time when comic readers had not yet been beaten as senselessly over the head with the with the super serious, extreme, extremely grim, battle worn, hardened, you know, beats everybody because reason, Batman that, uh, quite frankly, I and a number other, of other readers have become kind of sick and tired of ever since about the 90s or so. Uh, this was at a time when a story like this was still somewhat of a departure from the norm. So that's one reason why it stands out so starkly. And also it's one of the stories that most deeply explores the possibilities of, well, what fallout are we all left with because of this man's crusade? Um, What's going to be the butterfly effect? And in a sense, in this case, it really kind of trickles down to everybody from the fact that they realize that um, you, you have pundits on mainstream news during the story uh, accusing Batman of basically being responsible for why Harvey Dent is the way that he is. In other words, why he becomes Two-Face. 
you have Batman being held responsible for the Joker, which is nothing new. But, yeah, it, it's really taken to the limit on this one, especially since prior to prior to um, their, fi- their final face-off, the Joker uh, goes, basically goes after Selena Kyle, um, going, going so far as to dress her up rather crudely, and I believe it's a Wonder Woman outfit. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a very serious, very dark story. It's not... I wouldn't call it underread. Uh, Jesse Star Jesse Starcher described it as dense, and I agree with that absolutely wholeheartedly. It is not something you're going to sit down and read in one sitting. Um, mostly because, if for no other, for no other reason, again, it's so heavy-handed at times that you're just not going to want to read it that long. I don't think. Uh, uh, maybe you do, and if you do, good for you. Me, it took about you know two or three sessions over two or three days to get through the whole thing. But overall, as as the movie goes, I think I would enjoy it a whole lot more if it had been kind of a one-off, extremely dark departure from the usual DCAU and not more of an indication of kind of the direction that the newer stories were also going to decide going to decide to adopt. But still, having seen having seen it once, if I had to do all over again, would I watch it again? Oh, absolutely. One hundred percent because as you pointed out, it remakes it virtually panel for panel, but it manages to draw it into a more focused narrative that, that just isn't wildly assaulting you at every single turn. I have one complaint about the movie. It's a minor complaint. It's a very personal one. And I made the same complaint about the Hulk future imperfect. I, I and I, I don't think this is ever going to change. Um, I don't particularly like slang, <coughs> slang in comics. It's even worse when it's future. Oh slang. God. Are, are you are you referring to that fucking broke ass mad sat that the mutants are speaking? Yeah. Other than slice and dice, some which I could live with. You know, they go into this whole like there's a conversation that takes place between Kelly, who is the new Robin, who is in this, who is played by the gal that uh, plays Alex Dumphy and Sophia the First. Um, does a fine job of voicing the character. Uh, but she she's dressed up as a mutant and she's trying to you know lure them uh, to Batman and they're going back and forth like chicken licking licking leg I'm like and this goes back and forth and by the end of it I'm just like I have to turn this off and walk away from the computer. <laughs> you know what I like to think that uh, that 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 invented constant slang. I like to think that when normal people listen to wrestling fans trying to speak. In um in back in backstage jargon, uh, just just an ordinary everyday regular ass situation ass situations that that's what they kind of sound like. Um, I'm sure, but uh, yeah, Future Imperfect had the same problem where it made it very hard to read. Um, I remember as a kid because I, I read this 
uh, when it came out, I, you know, I was uh, 10 when this thing debuted, and I was reading comic books at the time. So I was a contemporary reader of The Dark Knight Returns, and I remember hating it then, too. <laughs> you know, young Mark, flipping through pages in this thing, um, and reading The Chicken Lickin' Leg, and I'm going, ugh, please shut up. <laughs> please kill all of these animals. <laughs> and it's not much better in the movie. It's just... Again, it's a personal thing. It's an aesthetic thing. Uh, it, it, I don't think it. Ta- I don't think it makes the movie bad in any way. I understand what they were going for. It's just not my favorite thing, and I almost wish they wouldn't do it because I have noticed that in any movie where uh, where they have a street urchin using future slang, it just sounds like garbage. It's it's it, it sounds ridiculous, and it takes me out of the movie. That's literally my only complaint about this. Um, you know, in as far as Frank Miller's sort of commentary on the world at the time, uh, I know as a kid, I didn't really get it. Um, at ten, you know, 10 years old reading this thing, and now I'm almost 40. And I went back and I looked at it, and, um, you know, I, he doesn't know that in a few, you know, in, in, in a year or so, the, the Berlin Wall is going to come down and the Soviet Union is going to fall apart. Uh, and I and I and I and I look back, and I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking about the context after the fact, and it's like it just it comes across as sort of a paranoid narrative. The thing that I was most interested in was the interaction between Batman and the Joker. Um, and you said something a little a little while ago that I thought was interesting. You said, you know, the DC animated universe has taken a turn for the grim. Because prior to the New 52 reboot, um, the DC animated universe put out a lot of really good films. The Wonder Woman solo film is excellent. Uh, I think you watched the Green Lantern ones. They were all good. Um, the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited shows that were on Cartoon Network were amazing. And a lot of these things were... And all these things had a positive vibe to them. None of them really took a turn for the grim. Um, but now they're going in this direction where even the DC animated universe is following in the footsteps of the cinematic universe. And the next one we're going to get from Batman is the Killing Joke. And while the oh Killing Joke, boy. and while the Killing Joke is one of my favorite Batman stories, um, it's it's a the violent, depressing. Uh, read and if you already hate the direction dc is going and and i'm going to take this episode to sort of sympathize with folks like you and gavin and pat and people listening to the show who don't know they are these are the people i do other podcasts with who have all sort of thrown their hands up and said we've had it um you know why can't anything be fun in in the dc universe anymore uh well on the one hand people are yell are, are yelling in the streets hooray Mark Hamill is going to be the Joker, and we're going to get the killing joke, one of the best Batman stories ever written. One could also look at that same decision and say, Jesus, don't you guys have anything fun on the slate? (laughs) Really? We're going to go, we're going to, we're going to shoot and cripple and sexually assault Barbara Gordon and and psychologically torture Jim Gordon. Terrific. You know, what are you going to, what do you got on the slate next? You know, someone in a Batman story is going to have their penis amputated. Where are we going with this? Well, and you see, herein lies, lies the problem, that you can take a very serious, somber, even extremely graphic story like that, 
and make it work. But the thing is, you have to be going from an opposite place in order for it to happen. Otherwise, it's going to be overkill. And in a way, that's why a number of the upcoming Marvel movies being a lot more a lot more serious in tone, having a lot more um, supposed gravitas, uh, why it worked is because they did start out from a very bright, colorful, action-packed direction. But then it feels like you're advancing the story when you keep moving onward, and all of a sudden, it's, yeah, you hit this extremely tragic valley. But then, then again, when you go from, I mean, I, I know the Dark Knight trilogy is not canon to the DCEU, I get it, but, but you go from that tone to Man of Steel to Batman very Superman, and it's just getting wanged in the nuts harder and harder and harder <laughs> every single time. It, it, you know what? If I ever liked this anything, it's the same reason why, and again, come at me, folks, because I don't fucking care, um, why The Walking Dead gets to be hard to bear after a while. Because it becomes misery porn. There is, there is nothing that feels satisfying or redemptive at all for the series in the long term because after six seasons, everybody kind of knows how, knows how this is going to pan out. There's going to be a little glimmer of hope, a little sliver of happiness, and then it is going to be beaten to smithereens in the most violent way possible. And it just happens again and again and again to the point where after a while, you just sort of go, what's the fucking point? Um, I mean, and, and, and the people who want to, who want to look down, want to look down their noses at Marvel for being movies made for kids. Uh, well, what the fuck do you think drives us there? You know. What 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 the hell did you expect? I mean, and keep in mind these Marvel movies, um, when they began in the early two thousands. I mean, in a way, I mean, in fact, you go back to the very earliest two thousand and Spider Man. You know, we were just coming out of we were coming out of the nineties era of comics. Um one of the most fucked up, dark, violent periods in the medium. And not even to a point of having artistic merit sometimes. I mean, sometimes to, the ju- to just the point just the point of, you know, blood, guns, biceps, and boobs for the sake of blood, guns, biceps, and boobs. Um, it, it is okay to want something that has a happy ending or at least something optimistic that you can hold to at the end of it. And 
going to just be perpetually remind, reminding you everything sucks. Just give up. Do you have anything you want to say about the craft of the film or any of the themes um, before we... Because uh, I, I have one final thing I want to bring up from our uh, pre-show chat to end the show with, but uh, I want to make sure we've given the film itself, the whole reason we're talking tonight, the attention that it deserves. So anything on the, the Cold War themes or any of the stuff that Frank Miller was touching on? I think... I haven't, oh, aside from, aside from my pen clattering the ground, um, uh, I know, again, I, the thing is, that was capturing the spirit of a very tumultuous, extreme, pivotal time. And I don't think you can adapt that remotely as effectively as Zack Snyder apparently thinks because it was a time in which politics had essentially rendered Batman obsolete Um, and as it was he had also been really beaten down by as acknowledged in the movie so by, by this point in the movie yeah he's he's already dealt with the death of Jason Todd. And that, that has just further driven. Hey, further I, I, I know you oh, don't like it when I interrupt you, but I want to, but you know, you brought up Jason Todd and it made me think oh, of something that, that I, that I've thought of before. And I almost wonder if comic book fans sort of brought this on themselves. Um, the very act of what they did sort of, you know, bringing about an era where, uh, film executives and film creators would then say, well, this is this must be what they want. DC did a really weird thing because people hated the Jason Todd character. Just hated him. <laughs> okay. Oh, and, yeah. and in the seminal work, uh, Death in the Family, which will be discussed uh, in short order on uh, source material in, in the coming weeks, prior to the Death in the Family storyline, where Joker takes a crowbar and beats Jason Todd to death with it and then blows him up in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Fans were given the option of calling a pair of numbers. One number, save Jason Todd. A number, another number, kill Jason Todd. And the contemporary comic readers of the day, in large amounts called the Kill Jason Todd number. Oh, it wasn't even close. <laughs> and, I, and it makes me wonder aloud, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it, it does make me think, maybe the impression that people who looked at that came away thinking, comic readers want blood and guts. You know, as you said, blood, blood guts, guns, and boobs. That's all they seem to respond to. That's all they seem to want. So let's just keep giving it to them. Well, as evidenced by their desire to murder Jason Todd in cold blood. See, but then here would be the point that everybody misses about that. And that is, is that the most effective deaths in comics are the ones that are made to truly mean something, that are shown to either have 
a great impact on the course of their universe and or um, further enhance the standing of that character by making an extremely noble sacrifice. The best examples I could point to would be, without a doubt, and Mark, I have absolutely no doubt you're going to agree with me on this, the death of Supergirl and Barry Allen, uh, the, the second Flash in Crisis on Infinite Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were treated to the way that those losses affected those that were left behind and the way that they affected the struggle to save the entire multiverse. Um, in fact, that was one of the reasons why a lot of people were really very, very salty when Jeff Johns made the decision to bring Barry Allen back in the Flash Rebirth, notwithstanding what what an admirable job he did, the thought was still, well, you brought him back. That kind of makes him sacrificing him, sacrificing himself um, against the Anti Monitor in, in this landmark event kind of meaningless. It, 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 it kind of waters that down a little bit. Um, you can kind of say the same thing, even though she obviously didn't die, about Barbara Gordon being paralyzed in the killing jokes. Oh, excuse me. Um, and so it is also with Batman and Jason Todd, in that other than The Dark Knight Returns, the whole thing is, Batman is shown for some time after that to be haunted and reluctant to bring anybody else into that role until Tim Drake comes along um, in, in, in the mainline DC universe. And, and, well, and number one, figures out who Batman and, who Batman and the original Robin slash Nightwing actually are. They're really Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. But he also manages to convince Batman to take him on as an apprentice because, as he tells him, Batman needs a Robin. And it becomes something that restores just a little bit of faith, a little bit more direction to Batman. And that's really one, just one of the longer, of the longer-term outcomes of the loss of Jason Todd. It's not death just because of death. It's some it's something bigger than that. Um, it's it's you know it's yes, it's tragedy, but it's tragedy that gives way to hope and new life. Um, and there's something that really is almost kind of life affirming. That is what Warner Brothers, I don't think, has fully grasped. And what I don't know if DC even fully under fully understands when it comes to dealing with deaths of major characters is they don't seem to necessarily completely know how to make them meaningful. 
It would help so, if they stop bringing everyone back after they kill them, but that's a conversation for a different day. <clears throat> the last thing I'm going to bring up as a topic of conversation tonight is uh, something I said to Sean before we started. It's a quote that Gavin Napier of Bunkhouse Stampede Radio and the Casual Heroes brought up um, as part of his disdain for now all things DC. Uh, I mentioned it to Sean, and Sean gave a commentary on it before we started, and I wanted Sean to address it again. And that is, and it's the last thing we're going we're gonna to say tonight before we get into plugs. Um, somewhere along the line, someone at DC said, we don't make comic books for kids anymore. We make comic books for middle-aged men. Now, before Sean launches into his thing, let me say there may be some merit to that point of view in the sense that DC is a business and they may have thought, they may have actually been dealing with the fact that they weren't making sales to, to kids. Kids just weren't buying comic books. They were doing other things, spending money elsewhere. It's, it's a changed world out there and you know sometimes the physical printed medium um, doesn't always attract the market you want it to. And that may be what DC was struggling with when that comment was made. They said, look, we're just not reaching the children. We're not making the sales. However, uh, the people that bought comics when they were kids still continue to buy comics today. They have changed from when they were 10. Uh, and so we will accommodate their tastes. And their tastes may be for something with some grit and meat and uh, and density to it. And thus, the modern age DC is born. Now, again, in, term, in strictly business terms, I see the point if that was the, the situation, and I don't really know, but if that was the case, I get why they made that uh, thematic choice. But it's not always about trying to make sales. And so, Sean... I'm going to go ahead and let you address the we make comic books for middle-aged men comment. Well, here's, well, you know what's amazing? Here's part of the problem. Part of the problem with it is, number one, it's absolutely toned down to purposes you will actually a lot of, you will find among a lot of adult geeks. Yes. Yes. Do you have the Fedora Cast next year for whom comics are absolutely serious business? And, and, you know, they don't want everything to be just a big slathering of gravitas, Shakespearean tragedy, tragedy, and much and much darker, more horrific scenes. Yeah, sure, you have that. But make a blanket statement like that. For me, it's not really it's not all that different from comments a while back when David Goyer, to paraphrase, basically said that all diehard fans of Martian Manhunter are based on blown versions. <laughs> um, when I looked this up, he actually said this. I would also add in the same interview, and, and I would also caution everyone, keep in mind this is the guy we have to blame for Blade 3, so consider the source. Um, this is the same guy who claimed that She-Hulk was invented was invented by virgin nerds who wanted to create 
to create a, a powerful woman they could actually fuck. Yes, really, he said this. On the other hand, number one, regarding the whole Martian Manhunter thing, well, I would point out that thus far, he's actually been one of the very best parts of CBS's Supergirl up to this point. Um, because when portrayed and written properly, compelling thing is compelling. Interesting thing is interesting. Entertaining thing is entertaining. Age doesn't necessarily have to matter. You can also look at a number of other sources and see how many grown nerds are still buying are still buying a lot of other things that are supposed to be mostly marketed marketed towards younger audience. Uh, look at how look at how many absolutely still love Nintendo as their gaming console choice. Look at how many are still huge manga and um and not and not just stuff like Attack on Titan. They're definitely for Death Note either. I'm talking about um, Sailor Moon, Pokemon, Digimon, Dragon Ball. You'll find a lot of grown-ups who love these things. And the fact is, we love them because they're also competently told stories. They're emotional variances. They're character development. Um, at times, it's escapism. That's the other problem with DC's darker take on everything, is the fact that it wants to keep rooting us in reality as much as possible. But the fact is, a lot of us started reading sci-fi and fantasy and comics and playing D&D and playing video, playing video games and LARPing and doing cosplay. Not necessarily because we wanted to be more deeply rooted in reality. We turn to those things because we love the escape, because in addition to just being flat-out fun, they disconnect us for a while from a world that is already hopeless. When I look around me every day, I have to look at the pervasive nature of online harassment, at a very divided, adversarial, judgmental culture in which... There's a sense that everybody is out like a sledgehammer. If you love movies, well, they love movies so much, it's a little bit disturbing. This is the Screaming Boy Podcast. Ronnie and Adam. Hang on, I'm going to turn it off. Now, here are the guys. We good? I muted myself. Just keep going. Okay. Well, it's kind of distracting with that in the background, but okay. Um, I'll assume that everybody can still hear me. Anyway, um, it's a world in which the United States in particular has never been arguably more more divided and more at one another's throats than we are right now. And it's given rise to uh, the very possible reality, the very possible reality that one of the most 
outwardly and hateful and spiteful and divisive um, people to come along in American politics in, in easily in easily a generation or two stands a very good chance of assuming the highest office in the land. Among those problems and scores of others, why, why do I want to go see a movie that just keeps insisting on grounding me in darkness, violence, loss? Why would I want that? Why wouldn't I instead want to go watch something that is fun? DC doesn't seem to think that, think that having fun with superheroes can work, which leads me to, quite frankly, quickly understand why Justice League, Young Justice, and Green Lantern were all canceled so quickly. Because people didn't understand just how beloved those shows, those shows really were, despite not constantly throwing, throwing carnage and shit and shadows and grime and rain and clouds and clouds and everything else horrible in the world at the screen. And they're not just popular among children. Oh no, far from it. In fact, they're more popular among adults. This punches holes the size of Greyhound buses in that whole argument that this false dichotomy is necessary that, well, one side has to make superhero movies that are actually fun and colorful and full of action and occasionally a little bit of humor, and another has to go, well, basically, the patently 90s route of, you know, The Punisher and Spawn and Image Comics and just go 100% Full grimdark. And to just make that a little bit more pointed, folks, if you don't think Marvel can go gritty, a Netflix membership is only $10. If you're not a wrestling fan and you don't plan on watching WrestleMania, great time this weekend to sit down and watch the first two seasons of Daredevil and the first season of Jessica Jones. Believe me, you will get you will get all the grit you can send. You will think you've been swaddled in sandpaper. And yet, even those manages to have, manage to have little fleeting moments of victory, of things being all right, of just a little bare bit of humor. So, in closing, no, no. By all means, do not look at the things that I, that I enjoy and try to quantify or quantify what kind of man I am. Because I assure you, yes, there's a copy of Little Big Planet 2 and a copy of the Sly Trilogy and a a copy of Kingdom Hearts 1.5 all in my binder full of games. Right next to Injustice, Gods Among Us, right next to Fallout 3. And on my hard drive, you also find the first three Fatal Frame games, Silent Hill, Resident Evil 4, Castlevania Chronicles. You'll find the wide, wide smosh. There's nothing wrong 
is sometimes just wanting to be happy. It's your canvas. Color it however you want to. Just don't begrudge the shade that anybody else chooses. Okay. Um, to, to add to that, this is why I, I, I still go see movies like Zootopia and Big Hero 6 and Frozen uh, because while I do, well, I enjoyed the you know, super serial uh, Batman v Superman and Man of Steel. You know, I too want my moments where I don't have to think about the sadness of the world, and I get it out of watching, you know, things like that. So there you go. Um, that is our show for tonight. Uh, it's one of it, it's it's one of our ones where the material we're looking at gives us an opportunity to editorialize on a bigger issue at hand. And that's kind of what happened here. It wasn't as much a movie um, breakdown, dissection, uh, like we would normally do, deconstruction. That word keeps escaping me. Not so much a deconstruction as we would normally do on this show because there wasn't much to deconstruct here. <laughs> you know, there, not a whole lot to work with. Um, not to say that it was bad. Obviously, we've just spent the last hour and a half saying it was good but there wasn't anything to really deconstruct about it so instead we you got uh, partially a movie review and partially an editorial on the state of uh dc movies both animated and non-animated and i think it was a good topic i think uh i think sean and i um covered covered it very uh soberly and uh and nicely so <laughs> there you have it uh going forward uh, we're kind of on an irregular schedule now. Uh, we were going every other week there for a little bit, but um, we we keep having changes in schedules and things. And so uh, <laughs> Sean and I have sort of reconfigured the schedule. The next time we'll be doing a long road to ruin will be uh, about a month from now, uh, a little less than a month. We'll, um, we're going to go back to back. April 21st and April 28th, uh, we're going to be looking at The Hunger Games, all four movies, so we're going to break that into two shows. First, uh, the first two movies, April 21st, and then Mockingjay, part one and part two, on April 28th. Uh, we'll come back in May uh, for, show, for shows on May 12th, and again, uh, May 19th. Again, we're going to go back to back. And uh, it's Long Road to Ruin looks at baseball movies in the month of May. <laughs> we'll be looking at the Bad News Bears trilogy, and then we'll be looking at the Major League trilogy. Um, in June, on my birthday, on my birthday, Mr. Comer, we'll be discussing the X-Men trilogy. Uh, X-Men, X2, United, and X3, The Last Stand. Uh, we will not be delving into the Wolverine movies or the, the new ones with, um, uh, what's his face there, uh, young, young Professor X. Uh, Mac, uh, McAvoy, because that's a whole other separate trilogy. What, what was that? Uh, no, I was saying it's James McAvoy. Yeah, uh, we're, we're just going to look at the three at the three the original three X Men movies before uh, Fox said, "Oh shit, you have to fix this." So, um, on June 9th, we'll be looking at the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. People have been asking me if we're going to look at TMNT. No, I'm looking at the three. Uh, live action 80s uh, Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go movies. That's it. That's all we're doing. Um, on June 23rd, we're going to take a break from the movies, and Sean and I uh, 
I'm going to let Sean steer the ship as he would normally have done. But instead of doing four separate episodes, we're going to just do one episode and conquer the whole thing. Orange is the New Black Season 4. Uh, and uh, then on June, July 21st, we've got Ghostbusters. And August 4th, we've got the Bourne Trilogy. So, <clears throat> so that's what's on the calendar between now and uh, the summer. And uh, next week... Metal, well, only one podcast uh, from me. Uh, you're going to get a lot of Screaming Boy, though. A lot of Screaming Boy on the docket for next week. Um, Ronnie and co. are back. Uh, Jesse will be on the show. They're doing a Netflix, Netflix um, documentaries. Uh, so they've got a, a bunch of shows that they've put out recently, and we're going to get caught up with that over the course of next week. Uh, so there'll be a show tomorrow, Saturday, 401 Mania on Mon- on uh, Sunday, Source Material on Monday, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, more Screaming Boy. And then I'll be back on Thursday with Robert Cooper at 9 o'clock to review the new Baby Metal Resistance album. Um, if, you've, uh, if you like tonight's show, if you haven't had an opportunity to hear the rest of the DC content we put out, go back and listen to uh, yesterday. Robert and I reviewed Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Um, last week, we put out a pair of podcasts in defense of Man of Steel and the case against Man of Steel. Uh, very different, but very interesting looks at the movie. So go ahead and give those a listen. Uh, we've also got reviews of Destroyer 666 Wildfire and what did we just review? Uh, oh, the new uh, Amon Amar Yams Viking is also in the archives there. All right, uh, that's it for me, Sean. I'm going to give you the last word and last plugs, and then I'm going to hit the music. Okay. So, thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Um, uh, thank you for joining us tonight, for listening live, for downloading, for joining us on the Facebook page, and all of the above. Uh, I really don't have all that much to plug. I will say this. If you want to connect with me outside the show, uh, shoot me a message and a send request over at my Facebook account, Sean Comer. Um, For the time being, I have several, although they're being condensed down into one um, in late May, what I'm calling the crisis on instant Facebooks. You want to go and message me one that has the handsome portrait of me and Iron excuse me again, in Iron Man armor if you want to chat me up. Um, that is soon to be my one and only Facebook account. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Canvas Content. Just please, wherever you decide to message, to message me, uh, use the hashtag LRTR to let me know that you're a listener and not just some stranger who wants, who wants my credit card number. Uh, meantime, I've only got one plug, and that is that my upcoming brand new podcast, uh, The Power of Three, is still on track to happen. Um, I've just got some opportunities for new hardware and new software that's going to make show better that I'm exploring right now. Uh, I will have some more updates a little bit later on this month in terms of when that's going to officially be premiering, but it's going to be me and my two longtime good friends, Ann Alberti and Jeremy Holtoff, talking about all the positive things of of being a nerd, of fandoms, all the things we love, why we love them, and just how, you know, this geeky life has kind of 
shaped all of us and made all of our world just a little bit better. Um, it's again, it's designed to be something positive, minimal snark, minimal sarcasm, minimal griping. But we certainly hope you all join join the fair. I'm in the process of setting up that show's very own website over on WordPress, so I'm very excited about that. Um, in the meantime, uh, that's all I've got for all I've got for right now. Thank you all for listening to, for listening tonight. I'm Sean. He's Mark. You're not. You're not. You're not. You're not. You over there. You're damn sure not. And I'm just going to say, never blow your colors for someone else's canvas. Be well. Be safe. And behave. Hey.